a preacher. That'd be great, wouldn't it? If God called you to be a preacher. Never too late. I can tell you stories of people I know. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, we, uh, my goal was to preach what I'm going to preach tonight, last week, with what I preached last week. But we had communion and it ended up being perfect because I've got three whole verses to preach through tonight. And that's going to be my outline. And um, there's some good stuff always in God's Word. I want to remind you, I'm very, you know, it's, this whole streaming thing is, I'm still getting used to it because we're streaming. There's things we're not supposed to say. I mean, you know, and so like, and, and I, you know, I don't know our church services with HIPAA laws and all that. So let me just say, pray for Mr. Kerr. Tomorrow he's going to the doctors. He's, those of you that are aware of what's going on, we need to be praying for him. Peg Willie uh, is, is on the mend. We need to look at that after that. So follow along as I read Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning of verse 29. Uh, I'll, I'll love thee in life, I'll love, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And I love this last phrase here. And say, when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. That's how long I want to love the Lord. Till the death dew on our brow. I mean, I, I just that's so... Poetic, I hope that describes your heart. We have such an awesome God. Uh, I forgot to mention, people always, every time I start mentioning people, Amelia told me, this is going to happen, you know, you, you, you're going to leave someone out, and even mentioning more people, I'm going to leave people out. Uh, but I just remembered, we need to be praying for Ed Carpenter, uh, Charlie's been in touch with him, and he had a procedure done, actually to, to remove a blockage, and then they actually... <laughs> Uh, needed to drill, I think, um, the way Charlie said it. But the, cert, the the procedure went well this past week, and Ed is on the men, so keep him in prayer. And then also, please keep Leah and Jason Carpenter in prayer. Uh, they would appreciate your prayers very much. All right, let's open our Bibles. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. As you remember, the, this is a, a time in Israel's history uh, where the kingdom is no longer united. It has been divided, and now it's being cut up. <laughs> it was divided into two, the northern tribes and the southern tribes, Israel and Judah. And a hundred years before the events of the book of Jeremiah, before the life of Jeremiah, uh, God uh, allowed the Assyrians to come in and, and take Israel, the northern tribe, captive. So now all we have left, as far as the people that are in their land, is Judah, the remaining tribes, and uh, judgment is coming upon them. In the horizon, Babylon uh, is being prepared. And uh, later on in the, in the chapter, as we see, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and he is going to carry away Judah and Babylon along with Jeremiah. Uh, all that is future. And just as was true with the northern tribe Israel, God sent his prophets to warn them, to give them space to repent. And he sent prophets that loved them and preached to them. And uh, as we will see tonight, uh, they, they did not appreciate it. They did not value it. In fact, some of the prophets they actually killed. And uh, now they're, God's giving Judah another chance. And uh, so we're going to look, the title of the message tonight is Rejecting God. Uh, verse 29, we looked at last week. If you remember, there's this pattern, this legal form that Jeremiah seems to be following, that God seems to be following, taking what is familiar with the people of God in their land, uh, their legal system, 
and uh, he's realizing that, you know what, you are, you're bringing a, a charge against me, uh, using court terminology, law language. You're, you're charging me with some kind of crime, and God is saying, I don't accept that. I am charging you with a crime. And that's the way it's worded. Uh, so in verse 29, where the King James says, Wherefore will ye plead with me? Uh, the idea is, you're bringing charges against me. Again, this is the legal term, the Hebrew word rib, rib pattern. Uh, you are bringing charges against me, and yet God says, you are the one that transgressed. You rebelled against me. This is not me against you. This is, this is your doing. And so now we look at verses 30 through 32, and we see clearly God again is laying out the charges against them. They have, number one, they, have, they were incorrigible. They rejected, they stubbornly refused to see the error of their way. They rejected God's rebuke. Verse 31, they were insensible. Israel, Judah specifically, ruled out that God could possibly be a legitimate help for them. And so they rejected the remedy. And then thirdly, so there was, they were incorrigible, verse 30. They were insensible in verse 31. And then in verse 32, they were inattentive. Israel had actually rejected, they had forgotten the relationship they had with God. So they rejected His rebuke, they rejected Him as a remedy, and they rejected the very relationship, the covenant relationship that they had entered into. So let's start with the first one, incorrigible. Verse 30, uh, God says, In vain have I smitten your children. Not smitten as in killed them. The idea is that this was the disciplining, the chastening hand of God. And they received no correction. So God is saying, I attempted to correct you. I attempted to, like a father, a parent would punish his children or discipline his children. I attempted to do that to you. But you would receive no correction. In fact, the people that I sent, the prophets to warn you, your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. How sad it is. When we look back at the history of Israel and the history of Judah, um, he does not specifically mention any prophets by name. But when we look at Israel's history, we can see that um, during the reign of King Manasseh, uh, he had vicious attacks on innocent people. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, which, uh, in fact, let me just read that to you. 2 Kings 21 verse 16, the Bible says, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem one end to another. Beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin, in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now later on, down the road, uh, when they were starting to go back into the land, in the book of Nehemiah, this whatever Jeremiah is talking about was clearly alluded to, because in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 26, as, as they're getting a history lesson to remind them of where they were, uh, he says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them, to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. So the Lord, in his love for his people, sends people to warn them. Because justice demands 
that they face the music, to use the phrase we use. But he didn't just react. Praise the Lord that our God is long-suffering. That he doesn't, you know, mete out judgment immediately. So he gave them chance after chance. And they actually rejected his correction. And they even slew his prophets. And so there's that, that example. Uh, during Jeremiah's lifetime, King Jehoiakim slew a prophet. We'll talk about that way down later in Jeremiah when we get to chapter 26. Uh, and then also one of the, historically, now this is not referenced in the Bible, but you know, tradition and history, it seems that Isaiah was on the receiving end of, uh, again, a brutal murder, martyrdom, uh, because the people of God rejected the message of God. So, here God is laying out the charge. He's saying, no, 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 you can't accuse me. You don't, you, can't, you don't have any charges against me. I have some legitimate charges against you. And he lays them out. Now what's interesting about this is that through Jeremiah, God is telling Israel, listen, I love you. And I'm sending, I'm sending people to you, messengers, to represent me because I want you to repent. I want you to get right with me. It is in your best interest that you walk with me. I've been a loving father to you. And he's going to mention in the, in the next verse or two, he's going to go back to how he had led them through the wilderness. This is a big theme in Jeremiah. Is that they have forgotten my loving care for them. How I led them through the wilderness. He's going to mention that. Years down, from the, years down the road from here, Jesus Christ would come on the scene. And he would share a parable about Israel that actually he would be the fulfillment of this little story. But he made reference, and he, he exactly shared from God's perspective what Jeremiah is sharing with the people of Israel right here. Listen to it. I'll, I'll just read it. It's in Matthew chapter 21, beginning of verse 33. Jesus said, Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard, and hedged it round about, and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower, and led it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive of the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. You see the picture. He's, these are the prophets he's referring to, that God sent them to warn Israel. This is a story, uh, and Israel is, is, is this, these people. So he sent again other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, and by the way, this is now in the, what Jesus is saying, the fulfillment is in the future of what we're reading here in Jeremiah chapter 2. <clears throat> Last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. Hmm. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. When the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? And they said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men. It's kind of like David, thou art the man. Uh, they will wickedly destroy these men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, 
Did you ever read in the Scriptures? This is where he gets cryptic. The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He was referring to himself. You know, the Bible says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so we're going back in time to Jeremiah's time where we're just talking about the, the, you know, the workers. Hasn't even sent his son yet. But they rejected, they killed the representatives that came, the, the prophets that came. But again, we see that it is all efforts on God's part to bring his people back to him. There is a, um, a story from a, a dad, father writes about... Uh, a time when his son was growing up and he was trying to teach his son responsibility. And uh, it was, I don't know if you have, we had this, I grew up in, in Westchester. In fact, the very pike that's just hundreds of yards behind me was our boundaries. As a young child, we could not cross Westchester Pike. Anywhere in our development, we could go. And we lived in a development on the other side of Westchester Pike, 15 miles down. And... We, there was all the good stuff was on the other side of the pike. All the convenience stores, all the place to get candy. And then one day we, had, we found out that a, a, a homeowner in our neighborhood built a shop called the Cardin Gift Shop. And she sold candy and snacks. And it was on this side of Westchester Pike. And, and so that was like, you know, that was our, we would go to the candy, so we'd go to the, the Cardin Gift Shop all the time. And I'll never forget when I was first allowed to cross the pike. It was like a rite of passage. Well, this dad was, had a son like this, and, and uh, he, his son wanted to go to his friend's house, and the son was too young for a while, but then eventually he allowed his son to travel the several blocks to go to his friend's house. But he tested him first. He said, but you need to call me as soon as you get there. And so initially, of course, the kid was just so thrilled that he was able, that he was being trusted to venture where he was never allowed to venture before. And so the very few, first few times, you better believe when he got to his friend's house, he got on the phone and he called his dad. Dad, I'm here safe. Then after a little while, he began to become more familiar with the way and began to, you know, feel a little more comfortable. So he wasn't as diligent to call his dad. Even though every time he left, his dad said, you, you let me know. You call me when you're there, son. So one time he forgot. The dad called his friend up, his, his, where he was at, and told him, he said, son, you were supposed to call me. Oh, dad, I'm so sorry. I was having such a great time. All right, son. But when he got home, he said, listen, if you do that again, you're going to have to come home. So the next time he went out, maybe the next time, maybe a few times after that, the phone was silent. And the dad realized, this guy's got to learn his lesson. So he went over to the, he was going to call. And uh, he was going to call and, and tell his son, you, you, you know, you can't come. You have to come home now. And he's imagining his son was his best friend. They were having a great time. And the dad loved his son. And he's thinking, you know what? I got to call. He's got to be punished for this. So as he's calling, this father said, the Lord, it was like the Lord did not speak to him audibly. But it was like the Lord said, you treat him the way I would treat you. So he called on the phone. He let the phone ring once. He was torn because he loved his son. He didn't want to take away this thing that meant so much to his son, but he knew his son had to be punished. So he just let the phone ring once and then he hung up. And then a minute later, his phone rang. His son called. 
He said, and he said, Dad, Dad, I'm here. And he said, why didn't you call right away? And the son said, oh, Dad, I, was, I, just, I got here and I forgot I was having so much fun. And then the phone rang just once. And that reminded me that I was supposed to call you, so I called. And he called. And, and of course, the dad was, was thrilled because the dad didn't want to punish him. But the dad wanted to teach him a lesson. You know, God just wanted to teach Israel a lesson because of the relationship. They were in a covenant relationship. God loved the people of Israel. They were His chosen people. Just like He loves you. Just like He loves me, especially if you're in Christ. God saved you. You're a special child. And so, as God would send these prophets, long Isaiah, just the whole list, many in the Old Testament that we read about the prophets, that came to warn Israel of impending judgment. Prophets were just misunderstood. They did not ever really look at these prophets as, this is God's loving us, trying to get us back on track. And eventually, as we'll find out down the road here, God would have to punish them. But I, you know, as a father, God, God loves His people. Hebrews chapter 12 is our New Testament version of Jeremiah. You know, whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. If you're His child, He's not going to let you go astray. Not because He's a mean, tyrannical Father. He's a loving Father. But He must punish sin. And, and He wants, He knows the best thing for us is to walk in fellowship with Him. So He will allow chastening in the ones He loves. So first, that was incorrigible. They rejected His rebuke. Secondly, they rejected His remedy. Look at verse 31, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 31. O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel? What does that mean? Have I been a wilderness? He's referring specifically, the word wilderness clearly speaks of a desert. And he's bringing up something that has been on his mind and that he has mentioned already. He's referring to their wandering in the wilderness, in the desert. Because he's brought this up already many times. Remember this already? We're only in chapter 2. He is the one that rescued them. And he is the one that led them through the wilderness. And remember, they would murmur and they would complain, but they still needed him and they depended on him. And though it was a rocky relationship, they were in a relationship with him. He loved them. And now he's saying, along with what he's brought up earlier in chapter 2, in the beginning of the chapter, he says, Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? He's bringing them back. Am I, am I that? I was the one that delivered you through all that. and You're treating me like I am the desert, like I am the wilderness, like I am those harsh conditions. He says, Wherefore say my people, we are lords. We will come no more unto thee. It's an interesting note in the margin uh, of the King James translation. As you know, I love the marginal notes and so many people despise them that, uh, that don't understand uh, the King James Version, really. But in, that, in, in the margins where it says, we are lords, the, um, it says in the Hebrew, literally, this is another way to translate it according to the translators, we have dominion. 
is what they were saying. Hey, we're in charge. You don't tell us what to do. That's, that was their attitude. That was, that was their, you know, they were rejecting God. They were treating the very one that could rescue them, that had rescued them, that had shown himself faithful over and over again. Uh, he had been their deliverer, and now they're treating him like he is the problem. And they want nothing to do with it. We have dominion. We are lords. We will come no more unto thee. Let me go back. I want to read. If you, in fact, you're right there probably. If you want to go back to verse 4 and following in chapter 2. This is where he's just picking up on this theme. Look at verse 4 and following. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that brought us through the wilderness, the desert, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death. That's the darkness he was referring to in our text. Through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. And verse 7, And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. But when ye entered, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage, mine heritage an abomination. The priest said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So he's just... In this text now that we're looking at, he's just picking up on that. It's like, again, he says, um, he says, have I, have I been a wilderness? You're treating me like I'm the one that's the harsh conditions. You know, and let's never forget as we, and we're going to do this a lot probably through this whole text, probably even going to Hebrews chapter 12, because that's like our Jeremiah, you know, uh, for the Christian. The chastening hand of God. No, ches- no, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, and this is what God wanted for Israel, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. In other words, if we would submit to God's loving chastening, then, then there's great hope. And we can get back into fellowship with the Lord and, and, and have our thirst quenched from the fountain of living waters. And that's... That's what was available to Israel. There's a D.L. Moody, as you know, I love D.L. Moody. There was a man named Andrew Bonar, who was the younger brother of a famous preacher back in, both of these guys were from Scotland, back in the 1800s. And this, uh, his younger brother, Andrew Bonar, uh, would tell D.L. Moody uh, of, Life in the Highlands of Scotland. He said, he told D.L. Moody this one story and then D.L. Moody ran with it. He just thought it was such a great illustration and, and I agree with him. So this Andrew Bonar said, there were, the sheep would often wander off into the rocks and get into places that they couldn't get out of. The grass on these mountains is very sweet and the sheep like it. And they'll often jump down 10 or 12 feet over a cliff, but they can't jump back up again. And the shepherd hears them bleeding in distress. They may be there for days until they have eaten all the grass. The shepherd will wait until they are so faint that they cannot stand. And then he'll put a rope around them and he'll go down. 
and he'll pull the sheep over the jaws of death. And when Moody first taught, heard him share that, he, he, he asked him, why, why would the shepherd, you know, why doesn't he go down there right away? Why does he wait so long? You know, the poor sheep, why doesn't he rescue him right away? And Andrew Barnard said, ah, these sheep are very foolish. And they would dash right over the precipice to be killed if he did that. And so he would have to wait until they were totally um, without strength. And then, and then Moody would say this in his messages. He said, and that is the way with men. They won't go back to God till they have no friends and have lost everything. If you are a wanderer, Moody would say, I tell you that the good shepherd will bring you back the moment you've given up trying to save yourself and are willing, willing to let him save you his own way. I love that story. That's exactly what God is doing to Israel, to Judah, in trying to plead for them to come back. Now you and I, we're, we're looking at this. This is history now. You and I already know. We know the name of the king and the, the, the country. Well, he would, Jeremiah would even say, you know, that it's Nebuchadnezzar and it's Babylon that's going to be, you know, that's going to be my servant that's going to punish you. But we know that's all history now. That already happened. And they, they went into Babylonian captivity. And we already know what's going to happen and how they returned to the land under Ezra and Nehemiah, that whole thing. But oh, the grief that they could have been spared if they'd only listened to Jeremiah. Last point, first, so we have first, they were incorrigible. They stubbornly refused to see the error of their way. They rejected the rebuke. Number two, they were insensible. They ruled out God as being uh, any kind of help. Like he would be, why would we want to come back to you? Kind of like the people that left the Lord in John chapter 6. After they heard Jesus is saying, uh, many of his disciples walked back and went no more with him. That's when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, will you go too? And Peter was like, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Oh, that the people of Judah had said that to Jeremiah about Jehovah, but they did not. And now we have their inattentiveness. They had forgotten. They would rejected relationship. Look at verse 32. Jeremiah 2.32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? What is this, Christmas time? Ornaments? What's he, what's he talking about, ornaments? Well, apparently, to the Jewish bride, uh, there were certain accoutrements, jewelry, clothing, um, it, it, certain things, you know, like we have a wedding gown, which is a big deal in, in our culture. They also, they had more than just a wedding gown and a veil, and yet they did have a veil, they had the gown, they had all this stuff, and then there was certain parts of the wedding, the, the bride's, outfit that took on the significance of today what would be the wedding ring to us you know what a wedding ring represents when a, when a man and a woman get married you know they they have a wedding ring and that's like the symbol of their love and their relationship and you know what it, it would not be a good sign if a wife took off her wedding ring and threw it at her husband you know that there's meaning there and this is the idea can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Not just once. This isn't just a lapse. Some little period in their life. They've forgotten me. Days without number. How very, very sad. 
the Lord knew it would happen. Recently we read in Deuteronomy, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Deuteronomy chapter um, 32. The Lord says, I don't want you to forget me. The Lord would actually institute Passover and various feast days that would commemorate their deliverance out of Egypt. And many of the Jews to this day still have, they have Passover. And these were instituted by God. And many of their services, many of their sacrifices were set up as a memorial so they would not forget what God did for them. And they, what's interesting at this point, even when they were worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch, they still went through the rituals of these long-forgotten symbolic things that were to remind them of their relationship with Jehovah. Be very much like a communion service in the New Testament today to those churches that no longer preach the gospel, but they still go through the ritual of the, the communion service. I want you to listen to what some of the prophets of old, like Isaiah, preached to Israel before their judgment. Same idea. God was fed up because they, they were still going through the motions of worship. But they had forgotten, they had forsaken their relationship. Listen to, I'll just read a couple here. Isaiah chapter 1 is the longest one. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11. Isaiah says, God says to the people, For what, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I've had enough. He says, I'm fed up with you. Literally, I'm full. I'm fed up. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of the lambs or of he goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Now, the the technical response would be, well, you did, God. And he did. And that's the point. They forgot him. When you come to appear before me, who bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. These are all things that God ordained. And God says, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity. Even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, when they spread forth their hands to worship, He says, I will hide mine eyes from you. When you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. And in verse 16 of Isaiah 1, he says, Wash you. Make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings before my eyes. He's like, get right with me first. And then these rituals will have meaning because they'll come from your heart. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. God says the same thing through the prophet Amos to the same people. He says, I hate I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Now remember, when, when Israel is worshiping God properly, the incense is a sweet smell in the nostrils of God because it flows from a relationship, loving relationship. Now God says, I will not. They're, they're, I can't. He says, though ye offer me burnt offerings, your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings. And then in Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, God says, Wherefore shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And the implication is no. He's, he wants a relationship. He does not want ritual. He does not want us going through the motions. He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. Folks, you and I in our New Testament setting now have so many more precious promises than the people of Israel did. Uh, you and I don't just get the empowerment of the Holy Spirit coming upon us now and again. When you and I get saved, the Spirit of God t- comes and takes up residence in us and seals us, indwells us, seals us so that we cannot, He will never leave us, and, and, and we're sealed forever. Our names are written in the book of life. You and I know we go back to the finished work of Jesus Christ, not looking forward as a symbol, symbol, the blood sacrifices. You and I know exactly where the debt was settled. And it wasn't on the altar of incense or the, even the altar with the Day of Atonement. It was on a cross, Calvary. You and I that name the name of Christ, we have Jesus Christ. We are His children And that's what He wants with us. He wants fellowship with us. If you've ever heard of a a great preacher of days gone by named G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was a minister who uh, actually did not have formal training. Uh, He was a peer of of Spurgeon and, and many great preachers. But when he was, in fact, when he was a young man, he... um, he heard, if I remember the story right, I believe it was, it might have been Spurgeon. He heard, he heard one of the preachers, he was 10 years old, and he heard this preacher and it just inspired him. And then two years later, he started preaching himself. But he never had formal training, and, and then he applied, because he started preaching. He just loved to preach God's Word, and he studied God's Word. And so he applied for the, to the Wesleyan ministry in 1888. And he passed the doctrinal examination because he was self-taught. He taught himself. But then came the last big trial, which was the, 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 the trial sermon. And so as he sets the scene, uh, he was in this cavernous auditorium that could seat more than a thousand people. I remember in Bible school, we had a, we, I don't know what Bible Baptist was at the time, maybe it could seat 300. And I remember in Bible Institute, uh, we would sit in this huge auditorium and there would be Dr. Wolf and then like 12 to 20 students and we had to preach. That was pretty intimidating. But I, I cannot imagine. One th- over a thousand seat auditorium and there were three ministers and 75 others who came to listen to him preach. And when he stood up and he turned around and he looked at all, looked at all the empty space and the minimal amount of people, and it just, he just, uh, how did he word it? Um, he came up short. He just, he, he just could not preach. He did not do a good job. And um, had to wait two weeks, two weeks later. His name was on a list of 105 rejected ministers. There were 150 that were applying to be ministers, um, and 105 of them were rejected. And he was devastated. He was devastated. 
He went home and he sent a wire uh, to his father and he just wired the word rejected. And his daughter would write a book about him and, and said that then in his journal, he, in his diary, he wrote this. Very dark. For the next few weeks, every, very dark. Everything seems. Still, he knoweth best. So those few weeks after that was a very humbling time. But again, he sent that word to his father. He sent that cable or that um, note to his dad that just said, reject it. And his dad sent a quick reply that he would get, not right away, but his dad quickly replied, reject it on earth, accept it in heaven, dad. Now his dad was a minister as well of a strict Plymouth Brethren uh, church, I, I believe, and then he became a Baptist. So his dad was a pastor, and uh, his dad wrote him very encouraging words. But I think of him during those dark times, those few weeks after, where he's feeling rejection, which by the way, that's all that Jeremiah felt as far as you know, whatever emotions and whatever feelings his ministry gave him as far as the people he was ministering to, there was no comfort there. You know, there was no comfort there. For years, he had to preach and his message was never received. G. Campbell Morgan would go on to become a man that God would use mightily he would teach in, in seminaries. He would preach. He'd preach for D.L. Moody. In fact, he, he was one, G. Campbell Morgan, was called upon to write. There were 90 different essays. There was uh, Modernism was creeping into Christianity, the mainline denominations, and a group of Bible believers within all different denominations of Bible believers. Uh, they, they said, we've got to do something about it. So R.A. Torrey composed and got and composed 90 essays from different preachers all over the world, Bible believers. And G. Campbell Morgan was called to address the incarnation of, or the to address the issue of, and his title of his essay was The Purpose of the Incarnation. And those 90 essays would be bound into the fundamentals. And fundamentalism would be born. And G. Campbell Morgan had a big part of that. But you know what, if he had given up during that time, if that time of rejection, if he said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm nothing, I can't do it, uh, he would have never had the legacy. And by the way, he was followed in the, in the church he pastored in London, uh, Westminster Chapel, I believe it was. He pastored there for many years, then he went to teach somewhere, I think, and then he went back. And then the pastor that followed him was a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a big, big name and, and would, would have his own legacy. But G. Campbell Morgan was the one that kind of prepared for that. God used him. Now, folks, God used Jeremiah in a major way. Uh, we don't realize, and he probably, he would be one of those that would th probably felt like he failed his ministry other than that he knew. He delivered exactly what he needed to to God's people. And he was, he was their lifeline. They didn't know it, but he was God's message of love to them. They were the ones that rejected God. Let's pray. Father, help us not to be like the people of Judah. Uh, Father, thank you for the Jeremiah's, the weeping prophets, the people that you love, or that love us, that you put in our lives, to lovingly exhort us, to be that shepherd, to be that, that mediator, to call us to repentance and to, to a faith walk.
Whether we're appreciated or not is not the issue, Father. You appreciated Jeremiah. You called him to faithfulness. And I pray that every one of us, no matter what our neighbors and our co-workers and the people we witness to, even family members, may reject the message that we have. But Father, that's, you're not calling us to be successes. You're calling us to be faithful. And in fact, that's your definition of success. Remind us of that, Father, so that we might be true to you, just like Jeremiah. And help us not to be uh, the people of Judah. Help us not to be those that are incorrigible. And, and help us not to be uh, the, like the people of Judah and reject you. And we'll thank you for it, Lord. Thank you that you take us back. Thank you that you lovingly chasten us. Help us to respond appropriately, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.